We are continuing a study in the gospel or the good news according to Mark. And tonight we'll be looking at Mark chapter 1 verses 9 through 13 covering some of the ground we read last time but looking chiefly at how the incarnation, the enfleshment of God on earth is a window into the very nature of God himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We consider tonight the, the doctrine of the Trinity because this passage shows us more clearly than most that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now we, we should say perhaps at the beginning that Augustine, the great famous Augustine once said that we speak in order to not remain silent. We speak about the Trinity in order to not remain silent in the face of things that are said about the Trinity that aren't true. It's easier to say in many ways what the Trinity isn't than it is to say what the Trinity is. But I would invite you tonight to consider the Father, the, whole, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and us as we think of the good news that God became man. And so let me invite you to hear God's word from Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts tonight. Have you ever noticed how uh, something attractive can make something believable to you? Uh, my wife and I were at a wedding some years ago where something attractive became believable to me again, and that is dance. I know that seems strange. Dance. Uh, you know, maybe you're going, dance, Ted, really? We're not into that kind of thing. No, I suspect there are more of us in this room than we'll admit who thought that uh, that dance around that uh, pagoda in the rainstorm in Sound of Music with Liesl and her suitor was, was pretty cool. And there are more men in here than I suspect would admit it who would love to be at the center of that woman uh, leaping as she bounds from one seat to another and steps over his knee and they end up in their dance together. I think dance is pretty interesting. You know, I saw Kenny Loggins twice live do the theme from Footloose, uh, the movie about dance, the old version of that movie. Dance is actually pretty cool. We were at this wedding and this couple, they were doing the two, Texas two-step like they, like they were dance trainers. It was unbelievable as they were circling in one another, as, as they were doing the pretzel together, and as, as he was sending her out and pulling her back and she was twisting and coming at it. It was, it was incredible. And I turned to Melinda and I said, that's amazing. 
Do you want to learn how to do that? And we did. We took a dance class at the university. And we don't know how to do that dance. Far too complicated. <laughs> but we can waltz. It's a beautiful thing. I don't know. I don't know what you make of dancing. But I, I want to use dance as a metaphor. Now, I got the idea from Tim Keller, who got it from C.S. Lewis. Dance. Dance as a metaphor, as a, as a window into understanding what it's like to be God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then what it means for us to be brought into the dance of the Trinity itself. It's just a metaphor, I realize. But consider who God is and consider what that reveals to us tonight. I want to do three things tonight. I want to show you this dance by showing you, in the first place, the Father's love for his Son. In the second place, the Father's approval of his Son. Both you'll see in verse 11. And then in 12 and 13, I want you to see the Father's trial of his son. The father's love, the father's approval, the father's trial of his son as a window into the very Trinity itself. In the first place, then, look with me at verse 11. As Jesus comes up out of the water of baptism, the voice of the father is heard This is my beloved son. You are my beloved son, my well loved son. This is the baptism of Jesus in which he is being anointed with water as any Old Testament priest would have been as he entered his public ministry. And you catch, catch here a glimpse of the father's love for his son. And it doesn't begin here, but it goes back through all eternity. And we might say this, that, that what lies at the center of all eternity is the love of the father for his son. It's the heart of of reality before the world came into being. And so here's what God is. God is triune. God is a trinity in unity. Three in one. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yet one God, not three distinct separate gods. Now that's mysterious. That's perplexing. Mathematically, we don't get our minds all wrapped around that. But you see here clearly the son standing, the voice of the father pronouncing his love as the Holy Spirit descends like a dove upon the son. You see these three persons, yet one God. We must say what the Trinity is not. It's helpful to say that that the Trinity is not this, that the father is sort of the God of the Old Testament, And Jesus is the God of the New Testament. And now, since Jesus has been murdered, the Spirit is what we call God uh, since then. That's not what the Trinity is. The Trinity is not one God in disguise, wearing a mask. And sometimes he wears the mask of Father and takes that off to wear the mask of Son and takes that off to wear the mask of Holy Spirit. That's not what the Trinity is. The Trinity is one God, eternally existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these three are one, co-equal, co-eternal, co-powerful persons. One in nature, one in essence, one in being, equal in power and glory. Yet they're distinguishable. As soon as we say they're all co-equal, we think one, and and rightly, and yet the Father is distinguishable from the Son. And the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father, though they are but one 
God, now I told you, it'll make your head explode. And yet this is what the Bible clearly reveals and, and, and the church has always believed. And what we see here is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit know one another and love one another. That's a point we want to get at more deeply. Look, I, I realize that this may be difficult. It may seem unbelievable, though it's not. Think of it this way. If God were small enough to be completely understood, he would not be great enough to be worshipped by us. Or think of it this way. Who would make this stuff up? Who would make it up and then convince millions of people over thousands of years to claim it as their truth about God and worship a God conceived like this. Oh, no. What you see here is the father say, this is my beloved son. I love my son. So what? So what you say? Well, C.S. Lewis put it this way. In Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing or a static thing. He's not even just one person, but he's a dynamic pulsating activity, a life, a drama, if you will not think me irreverent, a dance. What's he getting at? In the Trinity, in unity, each member of the Godhead, as it were, circles each member of the Godhead and has each member at the center of its being so that there's, there is in this relationship between them Mutual self-giving admiration, affection, and love. The heart of everything, the heart of eternal reality is a love relationship. And, And let's think that out a little bit. What if it's not like that? And if it is like that, what does that mean for us? Well, look, what if it's not like that? Then then you've got some real challenges. If God isn't a trinity in unity then you don't have love at the foundation of reality. What do I mean by that? Well, consider this. What if God is one God in one person? Simply God the Father, but God the Father alone. One-dimensional, a single, solitary being without distinction within himself. No eternal Son, no eternal Holy Spirit. Then, Then, here's the question, before he created everything, what did he love? And the answer is nothing. Love Love is an affection and and an action between persons. Love doesn't exist if there's no one to love. And so if before the world was made, God was one God in one person, there was no love because there was no one to love. And the implication of that is, potentially at least, why did he make the world? Because he was lonely. Because there was no one to love. There's no one to set his affection on. And and so what you have eternally is a God that's not at his very heart, at the center of his being, a God of love. He brings into being objects that he can then begin to love, but he hasn't loved until then. Now, okay, if that's not the case, and if you reject the idea of a single solitary being who is a single solitary person, what have you got? Well, some have said what you've got is atheism, really. You've got no God. But then consider love. Tim Keller highlights this very well in his book, The Reason for God. Uh, 
what, if, what have you got if you've got just atheism? Then you've got love is really only the chance collision of random atoms with no purpose or intent. Love, as any scientist would tell you, in an atheistic evolutionary worldview, love is just chemistry. Love is just the name we give to the passing uh, collision of, of chemical uh, reactions inside people that just simply enables us to pass on the species, as it were. Love is nothing more than that. Love is what gets us together. Well, if you haven't got love in an atheistic universe at the center of reality, then, um, w- then what? Well, how about polytheism? How about many godism? right? Lots of gods, lots of de- deities, except not a trinity in unity, many gods who are each individual persons, but they are not one god. So you have many distinct, different gods. Then what do you have? Well, the history of religion will tell you what you have. What you have then is war at the center of the universe. Any study of Roman or Greek culture with their many deities will tell you you've got competing interests at the heart of the universe. You've got differing agendas at the heart of the universe. You've got fights going on at the heart of the universe. And you'll see, if you study the history of it, cultures that embrace that idea end up in a, in a very tribal culture in which there is much fighting between the tribes. Well, okay then. So what if it's true, and it is, that God is one God eternally existing in three persons? So what, Ted? This all is beginning to feel like a lecture, not a sermon. Well, what about it? If God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, circling one another, loving one another, delighting in one another, and you are made in his image, meant to bear a reflection of who he is, then it means this, that you were made to and are redeemed to be enveloped into the circle of love. You were designed for community. You were designed for fellowship. You were designed for joy. God made you not for his own benefit as if he was lonely without you, but he made you simply to be a being who could delight in being loved by him. He made you not to get something from you, but to give love to you. And you are invited into the dance. And you are a person made in his image designed to be in relationship with others. Relationship, loving relationship is at the heart of eternal reality and it is at the heart of what it means to be human is what we're saying. Because that's what our God is like. You were designed to know and be known. Serve and be served. Love and be loved. And you and I will never experience life as God intended it to be experienced without real, genuine, loving relationships that is what we long to see jesus create at redeemer a community of people enjoying trinitarian love and imaging trinitarian love as we share life together as we care for one another and are cared for as we bear one another's burdens 
But maybe you say to me, well, look, my life aim is really to study, to achieve, to succeed, to accomplish. That's really what my life is all about. What you really want is a life where relationships don't get in the way of that end. Listen, I would say to you this. God has created you to achieve, to create. You are made in the image of a creative God. You are given dominion over the earth. And just as he rules and reigns, so he designed you and is renewing you to be a person, to master some aspect of his world. He gave us all dominion over the earth. But that is not all that life is about. And if you put job, money, power, success over deep relationships, you will be frustrated because you were designed to be in a circle of love. And unless you're willing to experience the loss of options, the loss of choices, the loss of money and time and energy that relationships require of you, you won't experience life as God designed it. So what I would say to you is this, under this first point, the world is a divine dance, and we need to be in this divine dance, not just dancing with one another, but the divine Trinitarian dance. God created you not to get that from you, but to give it to you. And so the Father's love for his Son is a window into that world for us. Now, the second thing I want you to see is, is, is to really to ask the question, well, how do you get into that dance? And Mark shows you, again in verse 11, when he tells you about the father's approval of his son. Notice in verse 11, he says this, You are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. Now look, what do you need to get into a dance? You need to be dressed for the occasion, Right? You don't go to a wedding reception in shorts and a torn t-shirt. You ought to be dressed appropriately for the dance. Well, what dress do you need to wear to be part of this dance? You need to be dressed in the Father's welcome. You need to be dressed in the Father's acceptance. You need to be invited into and accepted into the dance. So you need to be appropriately clothed. And the Bible would say this. You need to be clothed in the perfection of Jesus. You need to be clothed in the approval that God has for his son clothing you. What do I mean by this? Jesus uh, hears his father say with you, I am well pleased. The father looks at this man who's approximately 30 years old. And it's if he's saying, I have watched you, my son. I saw you grow up as a kid in your neighborhood and you were never a bully to the other boys. You didn't pick on helpless little girls. I watched you become a teenager. You were never unkind to anybody. And even in your thoughts and imagination, you were always pure in your affections. You treated boys as brothers and girls as sisters. It's as though the father is saying of his son as he stands there as a 30-year-old man, I watched you grow up in your father's house, perhaps we might say working in Joseph's workshop. And you never cheated anyone. You honored your father and your mother perfectly. 
You always told the truth, the father is saying about his son. You were grateful and content, never grumbling or complaining against me. This is what the father is saying. I saw all that and with you I am well pleased. I approve of you. I accept you. There's nothing in you that turns my head away. The father is saying of his son, this pleases me. You please me. Now look. That had never been said of anyone, including us, in the history of the world since Adam and Eve stumbled badly and walked away from their father. They were no longer well-pleasing in his sight. No, what you're seeing here is the father commend his son and saying of him, you have done just what I've always wanted to see in people. Jesus lived well, and he lived well for you. He obeyed on your behalf. The life that he did is approving to God, and all that you need to be right with God, Jesus has already accomplished for you. There is nothing you need to do to merit the approval and acceptance and welcome of God. It has already been purchased for you in the well-lived life of his son. You just need to be in Jesus. You need to be united to that accomplishment by faith, by simply looking to him. My assumption about every college student I have ever met is that they haven't really gotten their heart wrapped around this gospel. This gospel is better than the gospel you often hear. Look, I realize most people in our culture even today can say, Jesus died on the cross for sin. There are many people today who don't know that. But most people know that that's the Christian explanation. Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that you could be pardoned. And that is true. That is true as your substitute. The story is told of Napoleon roaming Europe with his army and a man is drafted to go fight in the war and he, instead of showing up to do battle, he goes to the draft board and he shows them the paper that says he had previously been drafted, hired a substitute to go in his place and they in fact had written it in their papers, in their record, died in the person of his substitute on the battlefield of Rivoli. And they let him go free. The guy he hired to serve in his place had died, and they said, that's enough. That's enough. And he was free. Well, this is what Jesus did for us. He died to set us free. We're released. But you understand, you understand it takes more than that to gain welcome into the very bosom of the Father. Why do I say that? Well, you know this in your own experience. Forgiving people doesn't necessarily get them close. Forgiving releases you from a debt. But it takes something else to welcome and accept them into life and relationship with you. And that is what the life of Jesus does for us. It's not merely that he died for us, it is that he lived for us. And you need to be in Jesus. Years ago... When uh, we had Joshua and Melinda was pregnant with the twins, I was in, we were in Jackson, Mississippi. Some of you have heard this story. And I had to go out of town with a bunch of students, and so Melinda flew home to Kansas to be with her family. How many tickets did we purchase? 
Melina, Joshua, pregnant with twins. How many tickets? We purchased one ticket. Why? Well, obviously the twins were in her. You don't have to pay for that. But the airline had the policy that they probably still do much the same way. Uh, Joshua was, was uh, two and under, and he flew free. So four people flew for the price of one ticket because one child was with her and two children were in her. Now, the Bible uses the language of with and in in a slightly different way, but the idea is the same. Anybody who looks to Jesus is in Jesus, is united with Jesus, and what he has done for you is yours. And the point is this, you will, on the one hand, you will never have any joy. You will never have any joy until you understand this, that everything God expects of you to be right with him and welcomed has been done for you in Jesus. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. You will never rest. You will never rest in the Christian life until you enjoy that good news. You will trudge around as a Christian saying things in your heart like, well, I'm trying to be obedient, though I'm not very good at it. Or I'll be as moral as them. But they're just so kind. And I'm not. Or I'll read my Bible more like those people over there. But I get so distracted. And what you'll be saying in your heart is that, listen, it's very subtly, but you'll be saying to yourself, well, God likes me when I do well. And God hates me when I do poorly. God welcomes me when I'm good. And God rejects me when I'm not such a good Christian. And what you are really saying when you say that in your heart is, I deserve at the place at the table when I get it right. And I don't when I don't. And here's the problem. You know as a Christian, as a true Christian, you don't deserve a place at the, at the table. And so you're miserable. Your heart is miserable. And God says to you, well, no. To get in, you don't have to just try really hard. You've got to be perfect. And my son was perfect in your place. So either be in Jesus or be just like Jesus. It's one or the other. Listen, this makes all the difference in the world in our relationships then. Do you live your Christian life in order to get God's acceptance? Or do you live because you already have it? Well, ask yourself this question as you relate to others. Do you, how do you treat other people? Do you welcome them because God in Christ has welcomed them? Do you accept them because God in Christ has accepted them? Or are you expecting your roommate or your family to shape up and get with the program and be more like Jesus before they can be in your circle of love and taste your welcome? Maybe, or maybe, you keep yourself distance, distant from others because you don't want them to see the real you. You're hiding because you're protecting yourself so you don't have to admit you aren't what you should be. You can't welcome others pointing out your flaws because you need to defend yourself. Because you haven't learned to relax in the righteousness of Christ who clothes you. Of course you aren't what you should be. Stop pretending you are. 
Perhaps you're killing the people around you by your perfectionism and requiring of them that same perfectionism. Listen, a community of love requires that we accept one another not on the record of our righteousness, but simply on the record of Christ's. And people need to know that you will receive them simply because God has received you on the record of Christ. So, there's a dance. It's a dance of Trinitarian love. We need to be in the dance. We get into the dance clothed in Jesus. And what do you discover when you're in that dance? Living the Christian life. It's not as good as you thought it would be. That you're on a dance floor surrounded by other human beings and the dance floor is crooked and warped. People are tripping over one another's feet. You're smashing into each other. People aren't doing it very well. And life feels like that, doesn't it? It feels like a war and not a dance. It feels like you're not in a waltz, but you're in a dodgeball game. Well... That's not surprising. Notice what happens to Jesus immediately after the father says, I love you and and you're well pleasing in my sight. It says, then the spirit drives him out into the wilderness, verses 12 and 13. And we know in that wilderness, he was tested by the enemy for 40 days. He had it hard in there. It's war. Life in this world is war. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. And so Jesus goes into that war to be led out, to be tried, as it were, by the Father, and to secure for us a better dance hall. Jesus goes out to do one-on-one combat with our adversary in the wilderness. And he achieves what the first Adam failed to do. He's the second Adam. He's the second Adam driven uh, to, to, to appear before the enemy. The first Adam was tested, however, in a garden of paradise. The second Adam is tested, Jesus, is tested in a wilderness. The first Adam was surrounded by cuddly animals who were friendly, and Jesus is surrounded by wild beasts. The first Adam had a full belly. The second Adam had nothing to eat. The first Adam failed But the second Adam succeeded. The second Adam was faithful in his obedience. And he won the war for us to conquer evil and the evil one. To set in motion the redemption of humanity. To bring us into the dance on the right dance floor. You long for that world? A world of perfect harmony? A world where we all get along together really well and with God? Are you frustrated with this world? Good. You're supposed to be. Jesus wants that better world for you too. And he has been where you are in this world. He went from being popular to unpopular. He went from being followed to being abandoned. From being befriended to being betrayed. From God is near to God seems far. He's been in the pit. And the cross says, this beloved son in whom the father is well pleased was forsaken and abandoned and crushed by that same Father for you. So that in Him, you might never be utterly forsaken. So that in Him, you might have the promise of eternal life in glory with the Father. And so, we believe the gospel is not only believable, as we said last week, but it is beautiful. 
It is the most beautiful thing we will ever know. And the Father's love for His Son shows us this Trinitarian dance of love. And through Jesus, you are invited to share in that love. And this Father's approval of the Son is the clothing you wear to get into that dance. Through Jesus, you are accepted and welcomed so that you might accept others. And the Father's trial of His Son secures a better dance hall. God protects you and preserves you and promises, though you will battle here and now, you will there and then dance well in his love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, show us who you really are. And may we bear your likeness, the likeness of Jesus himself. In his name we pray. Amen. Friends, our closing hymn is for all the saints. It does look forward as to our own eternal welcome. We're reminded of the saints who've gone before us and the joy that they experience and what we will experience with them before God. Let's stand and sing for all the saints. <laughs>